You've created your business and now it's time to protect it. Whether it's your podcast, speaking engagements that you do virtually or live on in-person stages or the community that you've built, you want to make sure that what you've created is taken care of and well protected. This is where AWB contract templates come in. They're customizable, quick and easy to complete and cost a fraction of working with a lawyer one-on-one. They have tons of options available so you can choose the ideal one for your business needs. It's an instant download. You get a Word doc template, you fill in the blanks and in about 20 minutes, you're all done. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash contracts today to pick out your new business contracts. And when you check out, be sure to use the code play for 20% off your contract purchase. That's P-L-A-Y in all caps for 20% off. Protect your business with AWB contract templates. Hey, what's up? Before you listen, I have a quick request from you. While you're over here listening, go ahead on down, give us a rating and a review, especially if you're on Apple Music. Let us know how much you appreciate what we bring, the conversation, the dialogue. Tell us how it supports you. Give us that good five star. We appreciate you. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it is amazing to see you here, where you're challenged to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here along with my co-host, India Jackson, ready to get the dialogue going. Hello, hello, ma'am. How are you? I am well. How are you? I am good. I, at this moment, the kids are quiet. It's almost the end of the day. I think I'm warm. I can't quite tell, but I'm okay. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I'm going to go with that. It's been cold, so just trying to figure that out and not turning the heater on to jack up the recording. So that's a huge yeah. thing. So those of you listening know that I love you because I'm cold. <laughs> I'm trying to fight <laughs> through that. So... Today we wanted to have a conversation and we have a guest with us and it talks about something that comes at the intersection of what's been, you know, a lot of conversation this year, but what really should be conversation at all times, which is just the awareness of how someone else lives and what their normal looks like and how there's so much more to diversity, equity, and inclusion to just black and white. Right. And I'll say like, I mean, if you've been listening to the episodes, you know that that's been a big part of our allyship this year is really looking at those pieces within our lives, within our business. I mean, you've watched us literally go from no transcript to transcript to article in less than 365 days um, out of our own learnings and unlearnings when it came to being more accessible. Um, And so I think it's important to include people who really specialize and focus on that area or have lived experience in that area to some of these conversations as well. I agree. And so this is where I would love to have you introduce our amazing guest that we have joining us today. 
Yeah, I'm excited to introduce you to Jennifer Surratt. I'm going to let her uh, let us know for sure how her last name is pronounced. Um, she has 12 years of experience in higher education, teaching, and training about concepts related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is bringing this expertise to the private sector. In addition to focusing on the foundational concepts behind discrimination, privilege, and inequity, she and her subject area experts also specialize in the specific areas of diversity, equity, inclusion, such as disability and anti-ableism. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you so much. And yep, you got my last name right. Many people don't. <laughs> a lot of Sarahs, so I appreciate <laughs> the pronunciation. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> We're excited to have you here. I would love to hear a little bit more about like how you kind of landed into this work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, um, I first started getting interested in sort of disability writ large all the way back in high school um, when I got interested in autism and wanted to work in the world of autism. Um, and I did that through undergraduate, got a master's in special education, and then Decided to um, study autism and culture, which brought me to my PhD work. Um, and that's when I really got introduced to the field of disability studies, which is similar to the field of African-American studies or women's studies. Um, so it's not the science of disability. It's rather the culture of disability and disability rights, disability history, things like that. And it really was an eye-opening experience for me because it kind of helped me identify what it was about special education that was making me so uncomfortable and made it a field that I didn't really want to be in because a lot of special education practices are um, dedicated to sort of normalizing kids who have various disabilities, um, particularly things like autism. So teaching kids to make eye contact or not flap their hands or doing these things that really aren't, aren't that distracting or they don't hurt anybody, um, but they cause distress for the kid or the adult. Um, and so I, I've been, uh, so I did, you know, some research on um, the understandings, cultural understandings of autism and in, in here in, in Atlanta and in South India um, and started studying ethics and human rights and things like that. Um, and that brought me to my um, career teaching in higher education on the same topics, um, learning more and teaching more on these foundational concepts that were related to my work, like intersectionality and microaggressions and othering, cultural humility, all of these things, and uh, really started wanting to bring this into the private sector where I could have a sort of a more direct impact on people's lives. And that's where I'm at today. I think the beauty in what you said is you mentioned the pieces around bringing it into the private sector. And I think when, whenever you try to bring something to a place that you're getting more of the impact mm -hmm. really happening with, you know, what feels like a smaller scale, but it's also, I think, a lot more intimate and a little bit more immediate. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to be said about that because so often I hear people speak about things really just based on policy mm -hmm. in a, in a very large way. And for a lot of people, I think when, when they're doing the work, there is that need for everybody involved to see a certain amount of immediate gratification to know like, yes, this is working because sometimes it's so large people can be, uh, what's the word? I mean, you can almost kind of get dissuaded from doing it because you're like, man, this is really big and it's such an arduous and long process. And I just don't know if I'm helping, if I'm making a difference at all. 
Yeah, that's really, really true. And um, I, you know, I, I feel like it, it is a constant process of learning and everybody is on a journey. And I know I've listened to previous episodes where you guys really do a great job emphasizing that. And it just, it definitely rings true because a lot of the times disability related stuff is seen as one more thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it really is interconnected with all of the other social identity work, you know. And this is where I'd love for you to share with everyone listening. Again, this year has put so much emphasis um, on the black and white aspects mm-hmm. of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I really think it's important to speak about the intersectionality and how disability awareness and anti-ableism work mm-hmm. really should be integrated. They shouldn't be extra side pieces. They should be a part of it. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like coming coming together? Um, I have a question before we dive into that, so I'm going to pause. For mm-hmm. those that may not know, would you mind first explaining what is disability awareness from your lens? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think even before that, it's what is disability? <laughs> disability right. is kind of one of those terms where, you know, when I, I know it, when I see it, um, but it's that's really sort of an inadequate way of looking at it. People generally think about disability as people who use wheelchairs, people who um, maybe have vision impairments or hearing impairments, things like that. Um, but you know, w- when you think about what it means to be disabled, you know, does that include things like dyslexia and learning disabilities? You know, most people would say probably. And then you think about, well, what about things like schizophrenia and bipolar? Um, some people seem to think that's a little bit different, right? Or even chronic illnesses. Um, uh, living with cancer, HIV, things like that. So there's a various um, different ways to think about what disability is. Um, but right now, about 20% of the American population identifies as disabled. Um, and so that's that's a, that's the largest minority group. And so it's a huge population and it's widely varied, right? We just talked about sensory disabilities, physical disabilities, intellectual disabilities, all health, chronic health disabilities. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in it. Disability awareness um, is kind of just being attentive to the fact that most disabilities are not visible. Um, and so you need to kind of be aware of access needs, um, regardless of whether you're certain that there is somebody disabled in the room. And actually, what's kind of an even better phrase is disability acceptance. So this part of this comes out of the autism movement. April is Autism Awareness Month. Well, autism self-advocates started saying, we don't want you just to know we're here, right? We want you to accept us. So started talking about Autism Acceptance Month. And so really it's about, yeah, we're aware that there are people with disabilities. Well, then what, right? It's acceptance and um, integration and inclusion and things like that. Thank you. That's a powerful description of that, that I think sets the stage for the conversation we're having. Um, And with that, my second question to you is, could you explain what anti-ableism is as well? Absolutely. So ableism, again, very similar to racism, sexism, it's a preference for able-bodied and mindedness, which leads to a discrimination for people with disabilities and being disabled. Being anti-ableist is recognizing that that is an unnecessary target for discrimination and discrimination and actively working against ableist 
speak, ableist practices, ableist events, things like that, that we see and, and do in our lives out in the community. So thinking very purposely about the language that we use, right? So are we using what I call the language of difference and not deficit, where we describe people's disabilities, not as they have a lack of this, or they are bad at this, but, you know, their social interaction style is different, or, um, you know, the way they get around in the world is, is different, things like that. Um, to, to recognizing, you know, in the workplace, what are, are there practices um, that are preventing people with disabilities from accessing our products, from um, being full, feeling fully belonged at work, um, all kinds of different things. And so um, being an anti-ableist is like being an anti-racist, just being actively seeking out ableism in our community, recognizing it, calling it out, and then making steps to alleviate it alleviated. Thank you. I know that those sound like really simple questions, um, but I'm going to raise my hand and say that up until this year, I didn't understand all the layers of that because I don't come from being a DEI consultant. <laughs> so I know that we may have some listeners that probably needed that stage to be set. Yeah. And I'll also notice, so one of my, one of my friends and mentors um, is a woman named uh, Rosemary Garland Thompson, who is really one of the founders of the field of disability studies. And I like what she says. She always says that access is always aspirational. We are always working for better access and that there are times, the reason, another reason why it's aspirational is because there are times where there are competing access needs, right? So if you have a presentation and um, you have a person with sensory sensitivities to light and a person with a hearing impairment that may need a lot of light to be able to watch an ASL interpreter. Those are competing needs. And so it's an ongoing idiosyncratic process and it is aspirational. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think that that's something that isn't always addressed in the sense that you have competing needs. Mm -hmm. And I think people have an awareness of it, but they don't always consider how they show up in action. It's kind of like if, you know, with with doing show notes, we've gone through um, a few different iterations of it and we're really trying to figure out how to make this more accessible. And by no means do I think like, oh, we have arrived. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's definitely been a journey of learning. And, you know, what we thought was like, there needs to be a transcript that follows this, this audio if someone literally cannot listen to it. But then it's like, but that doesn't help with context to simply just read exactly what we said. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to see that like, well, this is a need and this is a need, but how can you address it without feeling like you're taking from one thing to fix another? And even if there is something that there is something that really is a conflict. You know, how can you try to find a, a resolution that doesn't leave anyone feeling like I didn't matter, so therefore here I am? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and not just quitting because it seems hard. It really, most accommodations and access needs are not that complicated. They help most everybody in the room. Um, and, and you need to take, you know, I, I recommend taking the attitude that we take towards anti-racism and all of the other work is be humble, be open to um, feedback and suggestions on how to improve, recognize your own biases, recognize your own limitations, um, and be excited to continue to learn about disability, anti-ableism, and access needs, because um, it, there really are some 
really cool things out there that help increase access really for everybody um, and neat strategies that you'll find are really helpful for all kinds of areas in life. Absolutely. So now that we have a better understanding of what they are, how does disability awareness, anti-ableism, and DEI all, you know, intermingle and become one kind of set of awareness that you try to step into? Yeah. So you used the word intersectionality earlier, which is um, a really important concept for me and my work. And I think for, for all of this, this whole field um, and disability, you know, is, is really deeply integrated, um, intersects with uh, racism, sexism, classism, right? So um, I'll just list a couple of examples. Um, one thing we know is that in disability history with the disability rights movement, a lot of Black disabled people were left out of that. Um, so there is, you know, differences or, or, or discrimination coming out even in the disability history. Um, there are, are also overlaps um, in the fact that People who are disabled are more likely to be under and unemployed, living in poverty. This is exacerbated when they're people of color and women, of course. Um, when we talk about even the school to prison pipeline, kids with disabilities are more likely to be put on the school to prison pipeline. Um, and I think one of the most interesting um, overlaps between disability and other social identities um, that are disempowered and disenfranchised is historically and contemporarily, we use disability labels to denigrate other groups. So women weren't allowed to vote, right, for a long time because we were thought to be too feeble-minded to understand the complexities of politics. That's a disability label to keep a you know, community down, right? Same thing with Native Americans. Native Americans were thought to not be competent enough to own their own land or deal with their own money. And then, of course, we know that enslavement was perpetuated through notions of um, incompetence or quote-unquote savagery, which had a lot of disability signifiers in it, and paternalism. Um, so, you know, they're, they're definitely integrated. Um, and, and when we think about intersectionality and how our various unique social identities lead to experiences of oppression and power and privilege, thinking about disability and able-bodiedness um, is central to that or should be included as one of those intersecting identities. So you mentioned something that um, Indy and I had actually taken a workshop earlier this week and it came up and it's not something that I hear um, enough that I think there's truly an understanding of what it is, and that's paternalism. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> paternalism is, um, so just a quick definition, it's um, acting on behalf of somebody else because you think you know what's quote-unquote best for them, what's in their best interest. And it you know comes from this idea of being a parent. Obviously, we parent children. But the other side of the coin of paternalism is infantilizing, right? And, and treating people as if they aren't fully human adults. Um, and it's diminishing. And a lot of people with disabilities experience this. So for example, um, I have friends who use wheelchairs, um, consistently report to me that they're just kind of tooling around down the road and somebody will just come up behind them and grab their chair and start pushing them along. Oh no. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> no, yeah. I didn't ask for that. Exactly. Oh, man. Exactly. Um, and that is very paternalistic. I know better how to get you down this sidewalk. You must need help because you are this, you know, 
disabled person. Um, and so, and, you know, wheelchairs are, are instruments of freedom and mobility, and they're, they're definitely like a part of one person's identity. And so it's just like, I had another person um, bring up the analogy of, it's kind of similar to if you're, I've never been pregnant, but if you've ever been pregnant, people just touching your belly without having uh, you just decided that it was okay to touch me and you have been my made hair. in my personal space. Yes, don't put your hands in my hair. I don't know where your hands have been. I don't know you. <laughs> personal space. Like you have invited yourself to mm -hmm. someone because you have taken their autonomy and decided mm -hmm. that you have access to their form whenever you see fit and they're supposed to be okay with it. Yeah. And it's dehumanizing, you know, yeah. the fact that somebody that doesn't have your lived experiences, doesn't have your self expertise can just come on and, and, and dictate um, what's going to happen with your personal space. Um, and, and, and this happens in medicine a lot where physicians decide um, that they don't need to talk to the disabled person. They need to talk to the disabled person's caregiver um, or, you know, it, it, you know, as if they were a child who can't understand what's happening in, in their own health care. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's ableist is what it is. Um, so, so yeah, it, it can definitely be a big problem. And, and just, you know, a, a hint, hint to your, to your listeners, if you see somebody out there using a cane or using a wheelchair and you want to help, that's great. That is very nice. Make sure you ask. And if the person says no, don't be offended. <laughs> it is fine for people not to accept your help. And I think what you mentioned there is also just that fact of, you know, one, seeking permission, but then two, not making a, it about you mm -hmm. as to what the outcome then is one way or another. Exactly. Honoring their request and honoring the stated needs of people. Um, and, and yeah, not making it about you. That's right. One of the things that just came to mind as you said that is like the person who is using the cane, like you can visibly see that. Um, and I know one of the things that we've talked about prior to this recording, you know, is what about people who have, you know, concerns that you can't see? Mm -hmm. And how do they maintain control over their disclosure of that? Would you mind talking a little bit about that and shedding some insights there? Yeah, that's a great question. I've actually done a little bit of research um, on this with, I did some um, research a few years ago with autistic adults and talked to them about their post-secondary opportunities. So in education and in employment. And one thing that became a central theme in the employment related discussions and a little bit, you know, higher education is disclosure of your um, identity as being autistic, when and how it, you de you decide to disclose. So if you don't have a visible disability, so one that somebody can read on your body um, as you enter the room, um, then you have the right to disclose your disability when that feels most comfortable and right for you. And it is a very personal decision, right? You should not out somebody as disabled in the same way you should not out people in the LGBT community without their permission. Um, and, and what I heard a lot about was, um, you know, some people reported that, that when they finally told their employers or their coworkers about their autism and they got some really, um, really sort of disrespectful responses, um, things like, no, you don't seem autistic. You don't seem at all like my cousin who's autistic or oh. you don't seem at all like Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory or things. Oh. Right. So doubting your self expertise is one thing. Um, and this has a lot, this is, is particularly true for other like psychiatric disabilities. So things like depression and anxiety. Um, a lot of the times the response is, well, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just get over it. Uh, right. And so 
having to face that type of response is really diminishing. Um, the other response I heard a lot about, which I found really interesting, was that once you tell somebody about your disability, particularly if it is something like autism, then everything you do is about the autism. So, oh, he did so great on that report. It's probably because he's autistic, right? Or he really didn't do well in that presentation. Well, you know, he's autistic. <laughs> well, oh, and man. can you also, that sounds like, what was the word you used? Um, infantile. Yeah. Like, you've now just like, oh, it, it feels like you're like, oh, well, they're just a kid. You know, they can't do that. And mm -hmm. you've completely decided that you're not possible of, you know, you're not capable of doing this. And so no, let's just lower the expectations and write your story for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I feel like I'm hearing like quantifying and qualifying things based on what you disclosed as well, which just feels really unfair. Yeah, it absolutely is. Now, I do want to include a positive story that I heard in my research. Um, this woman told her employer that she was autistic and her employer invited her to write a bio um, about herself and her autism in the company newsletter. It, it went over wonderfully throughout the organization. People were coming up to her and being like, that was really interesting. I'm so glad you told us about it. Um, and, and she was just celebrated. Um, and so that's kind of like the ideal disclosure story, um, but unfortunately is a little bit rare, but it's definitely something that we could work towards. Right. One of the things I also hear coming up from my perspective is like stereotypes and labels that we are attaching to people who are disclosing of certain things. Um, do you have any thoughts on like how we can begin as a culture to kind of counteract that? Yeah. I mean, it's just self-education. You know, the, the thing that um, we need to attend to is the fact that we learn about disability, mental illness, all of this stuff, mainly through the media and the media gets it wrong a lot of the time, right? Um, and so we learn these very stigmatizing tropes about disability and about psychiatric disability that then we apply to the people who have it, right? So if you think about even things like schizophrenia, um, it's vastly misrepresented in the media. There's actually, it, it's not associated with violence. It's, it's not associated with really visual hallucinations to the extent that TV tells us it is. Um, and, and so we have this expectation of, of what somebody, you know, if somebody comes to us and says they're schizophrenic, that they're going to be erratic and violent and they're going to see things all the time. And that's really not what the experience is. We get the messages about autism, mainly that it's uh, one, that it's a condition of white boys and men, um, because that's largely who's represented in, in the media, but also that it has to do with quirkiness. It's kind of funny, um, you know, or it is very burdensome and there's tantrums and violence and all this other stuff. And neither of those, you know, represent the experience of the community. So the first step is to do your own self-education, going to reputable websites that, you know, reading memoirs of people with disabilities. Um, on my website, Disruptive Inclusion, there's re a resources page. And on there is a whole bunch of um, articles, books, videos, podcasts by people with disabilities. So you can get that perspective because what you don't want to do is go point to the one disabled person in your life or the two disabled people in your life and say, teach me about this so that I can be better because that puts the burden on, you know, the, the disenfranchised community, which is already experiencing the burden of navigating an, an accessible world. 
Um, so do your own research, do your own reading, um, and, and, and really start to train yourself to critique these messages that we get in the media about disability. Um, we all, again, it's 20% of the population. So if you yourself do not identify as disabled, you probably have a loved one who is disabled. You definitely have a colleague who is disabled, right? So this isn't something that, um, you know, is going to escape your life. You know, if, you know, one of the things about disability is that if we are fortunate to live long enough, you will become disabled as you age. Um, so access and respect is going to, is, it should be important for everybody right now. So some of what you just mentioned to me really does sound like ways that people can demonstrate their allyship to these communities. Mm -hmm. Are there any other additional things that you think people, um, you know, should maybe keep in mind or just some additional ways, because I do think it's really important for people to feel as though they can contribute. There are some things that can be done and to give tangible action so that they don't feel like I don't, I can't do anything. I don't know how to, you know, be a part of this. No, it's not for you to fix, but you also don't want to just be like, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me today. So I'm not going to do anything. Absolutely. I, you know, and, and I'll go ahead and disclose that I am an ally. I do not identify as disabled. So I come from all of this from the perspective of an ally. And it is an ongoing process. I'm always learning and improving and growing in my allyship. Um, and so that's kind of, as we talked about earlier, step one, recognizing um, that it is an ongoing process, self-education again, but just practical things um, is trying to attend to where access is and isn't in your life. So one really good framework for thinking about this is called universal design. And universal design is an architectural approach to build buildings that are as accessible to everybody, as many people as possible. So it has to do with flexibility, simple and intuitive use. Um, there are seven principles um, that you can look at. And those principles really translate nicely into not just buildings and structures, but to a lot of things like learning modes and presentations and things like that. So learning about universal design can kind of just kickstart your thinking about access. And the one thing I always tell people to be a great ally is, particularly if you're leading a meeting or a get together or something like that, um, go ahead and note what are the access um, features and what are the access lacks, right? So we're in this room. Um, make sure if if you feel the need to, I always tell people if you feel the need to stand up and walk around or pace, do what you need to do with your body to feel comfortable. I will say things like I'm presenting today. I'm I, I strove to make my presentation very accessible by using, you know, a few words on the screen and using high contrast between the background and the foreground. Um, but I will note the limitations is that we don't have microphones in this room, which would be great for people who have, um, you know, hearing related access needs. And so that's something that we're going to work on. So just, again, just taking a moment to think about enlisting what are some of the access features that are there and that are missing and, and making a dedication to, um, to improve that. Also, just asking people prior to any event that you have, what are your access related needs? Please feel free to tell me. And in doing this, particularly for leaders, will make 
um, your team more comfortable in asking for these things, which make people feel like they belong, like they're valued, that you're willing to do the work to make sure that they are comfortable and that people's voices are heard. Um, and, and that's not, it doesn't take a whole lot of time to point these things out or to make these announcements, but it really can make people feel valued and included. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that there are a lot of golden nuggets in there that you've mentioned that people can take with them and begin to apply today. Um, and I just want to remind everyone listening, like sometimes it is the smallest actions that lead to the biggest results if you just take one at a time and one at a time and one at a time and keep building on it. Yeah. And I'll also, I want to talk about um, real quick, the concept of being a co-conspirator. Um, this is a concept that I, I learned from an education scholar, um, Bettina Love, Dr. Bettina Love, who's at UGA. Um, and she is, she's decolonizing education and, and, and it's really fantastic work, but she talks about the difference between an ally, which is, you know, being aware, you know, doing work on your own, um, calling things out, things like that, and being a co-conspirator, which is leveraging your privilege in a way that um, empowers people who don't have the privilege and then um, not attempting or striving for the recognition of that. Um, and I think that's another way. So, you know, I, I want to, you know, behind the scenes work, making sure that everything is accessible on your website and, um, you know, for your employees and your clients, you know, that's being a co-conspirator advocating for disability in your DEI work is being a co-conspirator um, if you don't identify as disabled. This is very much the spirit of what we talk about when we mention imperfect allyship, because it is about action. And so often people can hear these things and it's like, I'm off to just do this by myself in, in solitude. And no, it is about being action focused and, and seeing where things can be done differently and paying attention to where things can be shifted to be more accessible, more inclusive and acknowledging the intersectionality so that people don't feel as though they have to leave parts of themselves out of you know the conversation or the equation in order to be seen in at least one way because their visibility is lower. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think another part of that work is um, you know bringing disabled voices to the table. One of the main maxims of the disability community is nothing about us without us, which means if there are decisions being made about really anything, but especially about disability, you better have some people with disabilities at the table making those decisions. And really, again, given sort of how uh, you know universal disability is in a particular way, um, dis people with disabilities, the disability perspectives should really be elevated um, in, in, into leadership positions as much as possible. Agreed. Absolutely. India, are there any last words that you can think of that we have not addressed that we can make sure that we are giving people, again, all of the things that, you know, they need for this moment to be able to go off and to be in action with what they've learned today? Um, I think we've covered quite a bit for this episode. I would say to stay tuned, we plan on going into some more specific areas of things that you can do um, that I think require a little bit more conversation than just the 30 minutes or so we had today. <laughs> Agreed. So before we go, Jen, if there are any 
kind of, you know, last things that you'd like to share or, you know, one thing that you'd maybe ask people be in action with, please feel free to inspire the audience. Yeah, I think, you know, it it does seem like this ability is kind of the the last um, the last piece of the puzzle to some of the DNI work. So I just encourage you to advocate for disability being a part of the conversation. You know, I think that it it gets forgotten because there's something about it relating to differences of the body or mind that makes disability seem like a natural way to divide people and to put people in certain types of hierarchies. Um, and, you know, it's just, that's just not the case. So we really need to think just, I encourage you just to, if there's a DEI conversation going on, make sure to mention, oh, and don't forget disability. We need to do something about disability, right? Um, but I really appreciate uh, you guys having me on, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. And for all of your episodes, they're really fantastic. We appreciate having you, and we appreciate you sharing your time and your knowledge and expertise with us. Thank you. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. This was another great example of why I love these conversations when Indy and I really get to bring in amazing people that get to shine in their zone of genius. They get to bring their, you know, learned experience from what they do and how they do it and who they do it for. And we're able to really expand the information that you can take in. And it's not just about us because expertise goes, you know, way beyond just the scope of what we know those in our circle and being able to expand that it really does mean so much and so this month in the community we are doing a deep dive into accessibility talking about what that looks like how it shows up how it uh, you know is impacting your business ways that you can make impact with it and do things differently so if you want to come on over and be a part of that conversation you can join today you can apply at pauseontheplay.com forward slash community. Come on over, put your application in, join us, be a part. It's not complete without you there. You know, I love having these conversations. You know, I love being here. And as always, I have immense gratitude for everyone that comes week after week, listens to us, and they talk about what they're doing. And just, again, I I, I can just gush over you (laughs) long term. So I appreciate you. And we will continue this conversation in the community. Again, come on over and join it. And you'll see me back next week. Until then, keep the dialogue going. Bye. Ready to get clear on what matters? Let's do this. From implicit to explicit is a framework that helps you to get clear on what matters and how it informs the way you live and lead in your workplace. Whether it's focusing on the team building and connection that can happen when you talk about what matters to you as a person or how it informs the outcomes that you seek in your business, it can all completely change the game. Having clarity on what your values are and how this shapes the way your work creates the foundation for every action that you take and then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. 
Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?